All right, so we are here today to talk about Popeye, born from 1980. <laughs> which was not considered a big success on its original release. And it's notable not only because it's such an original, eccentric piece of work, but because it unites five different careers. One of them, the producer, Robert Evans, one, the director, Robert Altman, one, the screenwriter, Jules Pfeiffer, another, the composer, Harry Nilsson, and then finally, its star, Robin Williams. This was his first motion picture. So it's a movie that's not quite like any other movie ever made, even though it's, it has things in common with other films that Robin Williams did, other films that Robert Altman did, uh, but it's really, an original. <laughs> Jonathan, uh, I, I don't know if you, I think we agreed on it together. Why were you excited to do Popeye? You know, I've, I have a soft spot for things that are at that high level of imagination and creativity. That movie is, is, is it looks, it, like, as you just said, it's completely original. There isn't anything that's looked like it since, it looked like it before. You know, it's, it, the, the, the scene construction. I mean, it's such a it's such a fantasy land without really being, without being like you know childish or pandering at all. The remarkable thing about it is that it has all that in it, and and it's all so very uh, you know manner. They they have all everyone has way a, a manner of speaking is really a character. And the, the the music is amazing, so that's worth it. And you know, I just think it's a very unusual piece of work. You know, so I can explain why it exists. All right, because um, now this is a movie that's you know thirty-seven years old, and removed from context, you would just see it. You know, I used to say at the video store, if it's streaming somewhere, and you're like, "Pop, I what, what, what is that?" And so, it's really at the tail end of what you would consider the American New Wave in Hollywood, where young filmmakers, screenwriters, directors, actors, and producers uh, ran the big studios by identifying what it is that the youth market wanted that the studios didn't know. And so all those original, very sort of artistic or literary films in the 70s were really because they gave the creative people the power. Um, and one of the most important people in that story is Robert Evans. Robert Evans was uh, an actor who became the head of Paramount and uh, as a producer, as a studio head, is identified with everything from Rosemary's Baby to The Godfather to Chinatown. Uh, and then he was back to being a producer. And believe it or not, Popeye was made because of the success of Superman. That they saw that Superman was a big smash hit and they're like, that's a comic, are there other comics? And then Robert Evans really wanted to make the movie of Annie, which was the big smash on Broadway. Uh, and he didn't get the rights to Annie, and so he's like, fine, what else is there? And so then he, he decided to make a movie of Popeye, and that's why he decided it had to be a musical. Uh, and then he wanted a great actor to play Popeye and a great director, and the first versions that he found, the original actor who was going to play Popeye was Dustin Hoffman, and the original actor, I'm sorry, the original director was Hal Ashby. Right. And you can only imagine what kind of movie that would be. There are different versions of the story, but uh, uh, Jules Pfeiffer, who is famous as a cartoonist for a long-running strip he did in the Village Voice, was also a playwright and a screenwriter. He's famous for writing Carnal Knowledge. He was brought on as the writer first. Uh, the, the story is, is that he asked 
uh, Robert Evans, well, you're going to make Popeye. Which Popeye are you going to make? Because Popeye, you know, was originated in a comic strip called Thimble Theater that started in 1919, and he was a supporting character who kind of took over this comic strip uh, by E.C. Cigar, and then he was made popular. It, it, it took a while to take over. There was all those characters, but like what this movie has, which is all that right. tremendous interplay with the Oil Family, did it? it you know, it turns out in the early comics that the Oil Family it was it, all it was big. It was all the Oil Family, oils and Whippy and Ham Gravy and all yeah, those people. And so then the Fleischer brothers, Max and Dave Fleischer, who did. Betty Boop made him a cartoon superstar, and that's where all the Alibaba Sinbad cartoons are. Amazing. Yeah, Stop. also wonderful, a little more slapsticky. And Pfeiffer, being cartoonist, said, "Well, which one are you doing?" And Robert Evans, no producer alive would say this now in Hollywood, said, "Well, whichever one you want. Like, what's the artist want?" And so Pfeiffer was more faithful to the ECC guy. He wanted to do something that was, let's just say, more eccentric, and then. Uh, allegedly, I'll say allegedly, it's in multiple accounts. Dustin Hoffman left the project because he didn't like the script. But there's also the sense that he was also about to do Kramer versus Kramer. Uh -huh. You know, Hal Ashby left to do another movie. It might have been being there. So you think, well, they always leave not because they, maybe they didn't like it, maybe they preferred to do something else. For whatever reason, he needed a new director. And he, Ev Evans thought of Robert Altman. And in retrospect, now we live in a world where every major Hollywood motion picture doesn't have to merely be connected to a marketing plan and a merchandising plan, but also has to be a tentpole, a franchise, something that can really keep everybody afloat for years and years. And Robert Altman was not only um, a, an artist, an iconoclast, and a rebel, he was just not at all the person that you would set the financial future of your multinational corporation on. But Robert Evans was like, oh, Robert Altman has a truly original uh, worldview, and so let's make a Robert Altman movie. Well, you know, it's also, and also people like Robert Altman. I, mean, I was just talking to a, a yoga student, one of my yoga students who worked at William Morris for a long time, who said, she, she said, I told her we were coming to do this, and she said, Oh yeah, Altman used to hang around at the st at the place all the time, and the agents usually don't like anybody that they have to deal with. But everybody loved Altman, but he was always in there being loud, smoking dope, hanging around. And he, <laughs> he, so Altman's know. an unusual right. guy. He started, and everyone liked him. That's yeah. his important thing. It turned out everyone loved the guy. So yeah, the, yeah, the key to getting people to like you, I think, is probably to quit drinking, which he did at a young age, and I think it saved his career. He was just someone who was a lot more. Friendly, so they say. I never know. But uh, he uh, started directing at a young age, but didn't get into motion pictures until he was over forty. And then he sort of quickly had this success with Mash, which was again only at a certain time and place in Hollywood would a movie like Mash have become the smash hit it was. And then he really did set this style of doing, uh, you know. Ensemble pieces, let's say. Let's talk about the audio. Yeah, sure. Right. So ultimately, I mean, we can't even really gloss over the fact that Robin Williams was a, sort of a no-brainer. He was on Mork and Mindy, but that he'd never done a movie, but he was so talented, it was very easy to imagine him in the part. He did a great job. But as Robert Altman made the decisions about how to make the movie a certain way, he encountered the Pickle Family Circus, which was the uh, comedy troupe, including. Um, Bill Irwin, the famous clown who has that sort of collapsible uh -huh. neck. 
And all those people became the ensemble that made the movie much more like Thimble Theater, where he made it about this village of Sweet Haven and all the characters in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, it's amazing. I, I, the, well, the interesting thing is that is that it, if if it's pop, I mean, there's so many phenomena. So you can talk about Popeye itself as a phenomenon and what goes on in Popeye. And this is, as you said, what kind of Popeye? And really, this does all of the kinds of Popeye show up in the film, really, which is all the Popeyes that you would, which is really incredible because people only usually know the Popeye that's related to their era. But it's interesting because if you think about it, let's discuss why is Popeye even something that people are interested in anyway. I, 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 this, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. What is so damn good about Popeye as, he, a, car, as, a, as a comic as the, book character, character. It's something that people love. Now, you know, because I really thought about this. And it's very interesting because you say that he comes from Superman, right? Evans wanted to do this after Superman. But they're vastly different kind of item. Uh, although, so it, why do people like Popeye? You know, what's actually worth mentioning is that, you know, Thimble Theater started in 1919, but Popeye didn't enter the strip till early 30s, right? Yeah, 20, like 29, I think. However, so. he predates Superman in the comics by almost 10 years, and he was the first guy in the comics who had super strength. Right. So okay, he's so a superhero of the kind. Uh -huh. He was the first guy who had a power that if he got his spinach, he could beat the hell out of anybody. Yeah. Right? And he had weakness, and he had all this other stuff. So he is a hero. He's just somebody who came... He sort of arrived fully formed before... I've never thought about this, but the way you asked it, he arrived before the true anthropomorphism of superhero culture. Mm -hmm. So Superman looks like a dude, Batman looks like a dude, they were all very much human beings. As opposed to before that were characters like, you know, Little Nemo and Crazy Cat and Felix and Mickey Mouse and all that were all not, they were, they were humanoid and everything, but they weren't people. Whereas Popeye was just, Popeye, Popeye appeals to young children. Um, he's funny. His older cartoons, the Fleischer Brothers cartoons, the ones from yeah. the 30s, are as funny as anything. They really were running the best game in animation outside of Disney. Yeah. There's a steep drop-off after them. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But it's, it's, it's just interesting to me. I was thinking about it. You know, it's just a sailor, a lone sailor, merchant clearly some sort of merchant marine sailor, right? Like, if you think about it, and everybody is, you know, if you present it that way, you know, I have an idea. We're going to run a merchant marine as, as a hero. I mean, seriously, I just say, yeah, well, it's kind know, of, you know, the description doesn't really go over right away. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting what the mixture is between the graphic, you know, the, the iconic things, the pipe, the... You know the big arms. I guess every kid wants to be strong, but you I know. don't think every kid wants to have gigantic forearms. What? What's that? Robert, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But Robert Williams described those gloves as uh, two hazmat gloves filled with putty. They have to put on, <laughs> like just in the calves and the forearms. Yeah. Um, you know, I wish our friend Michael Tisram was here, who wrote the book about Crazy Cat. But you think at that time in American culture. There was a strong immigrant community, people who were learning English as a second language, and Popeye is a character who mumbles and speaks gibberish, and most of the people in that world talk in a kind of code or patois. Somebody else made the observation that the earliest cartoons of Popeye and Bluto and everybody has them all living basically in tenement settings. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. And that later on, they got 
They're a little more sort of Tom and Jerry suburban. But they started off being like these urban characters who lived in very close quarters. Again, very fantastic. I mean, it's yeah. so unusual now. People people are, are into it of every age and and carry and it's lasted forever. It's still so again, I have to talk about Robert Altman, not just because of his love of ensembles, but also he's got these two very there's a couple things about his style in general, all of which he brought to Popeye. One, he loved depth of frames. He was somebody who loved to have multiple planes of action, something happening close to the camera, something happening off in the distance, mm -hmm. and something happening in the mid, which is interesting because comics are so flat. Yeah. And so he had a kind of depth to it. Secondly, he loved overlapping dialogue. He loved to have people, you know, traditionally, uh, production audio is um, mixed live to two channels when you record dialogue. Whereas, as I understand it, Robert Altman mic'd up to 24 different actors Absolutely. and recorded their tracks yeah. as opposed to deciding at the time what the action was. He, he would, uh, he, was, he was known to stage gigantic tableaus of action with characters having activities, some of which were based on the script and some weren't. He threw out the script every time to do something new. And actors frequently didn't know if they were on camera and, and if what they were saying or doing was part of the movie, and he loved that. Yeah, well, that's interesting. But the, the audio thing is really is is really cool because, of course, people in his movies are often talking uh, simultaneously with un seemingly unrelated. I mean, it's very in a way it develops the movie a, a lot of ways, but it's seemingly unrelated if you think about the, the sort of calculated way that that, that you know that, that most narrative movies proceed, but. The interesting thing is, in this case, it works out very well because what you often see in cartoons is you see the cartoon, the, the cartoon frame, and you see bubbles of people talking that aren't in the frame a lot. It actually happens a lot in cartoons and flat, flat 2D cartoons. So actually, the way it kind of works. But you know, there's there, there's that, and and uh, that, yeah, the way he recorded the sound is very interesting. Of course, now that's a lot more standard. People are recording a multi-track all the time now. You know, but it was really special when he started doing it. It's a, it's definitely a. It's, it's a high-ticket item, as somebody who makes films, you know, to decide you're going to mic multiple actors and record them in separate tracks is something that you you have to order it special. It's not okay, something yeah, that happens well, well, let me stop that. What I meant was, it, once you're into large production, it's oh, yeah. more normal to be doing that. But almost know. every large production, this is why Robert Altman was truly different, You. The script is the basis for what you're going to shoot every day, and the editor gets the script and they try and reconstruct what was intended. Whereas when Jules Pfeiffer found out that Robert Altman was going to be the director, he was delighted because he knew it would be a great movie, but he knew he would never see a word that he'd written on screen, and he said he kind of didn't. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that he was somebody that was notorious for throwing the script out. I mean, we have to talk about the movie's location. It was shot in Malta. Yeah. And there are a lot of reasons it was shot in Malta, but the most consistent reason I found is because it was as far away from the studio as possible. Uh -huh. It was on an island yeah. in the Mediterranean where Robert Altman, who really was from that era where he didn't want the people who did the money part to have any say in what was being made. Yeah, or so we had the best producer for him and Robert Evans. Um, but he basically wanted to just take it for to control every aspect of it and to make the filmmaking process separate from what was going to happen when the movie was done. Yeah. Uh, all these are great things. I mean, you asked me why I'm interested, why I'm interested in the movie is because of this, this level of uh, 
of the let the artist do it and then some really incredible thing if you let them do, deal with that and they're they're good artists it's you end up with in my opinion something a lot you know a lot more interesting than what's controlled obviously you can only say that in relation to the other thing but i think we we end up with a glut of you know ordinary derivative movies and very few of these these days so i'm always interested in that you know and but it's interesting about sound and film i mean you know that that's very precise recording and, and care going into 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 the idea of sound uh, and, and dialogue and so i, I love that um i'm not sure you know it, it it's fine if it goes the other way you know and i'm sure we're going to probably end up doing uh, uh, some other movies like a lot of pasolini movies or uh, italian movies from the Trinidad where they didn't even care. They were just going to overdub all the, that, that all was, the dialogue anyway, and, and no one cared. It's it's interesting now, in the last 40 years, in American cinema, we have elevated sound to an art form equivalent to um, picture. So Walter Murch, and the basically starting with the sound in Apocalypse Now, maybe in 2001, that the way sound became an essential aspect, it's a fundamental pillar of film style, it makes it, I'll just, it's an asterisk challenge to go back and watch Italian films where production sound was negligible and that sound was something that was just added later. It's, the, it's not deficient in those movies, but it's almost like watching an odd cousin of silent cinema or early sound cinema. Like, oh yeah, we didn't end up doing it that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, just I, I, I'm not bothered by it at all. It's 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 funny, you know, and, I, and sometimes, I mean, as somebody who's done sound for pictures, you know, and had to deal with stuff with people, is, is the amount of these days. What, see, they used to even in American movies, we would call it Mickey Mouse. We have to make sure that everything that you see on the movie has a sound that goes on. If somebody's yeah, walking. Magic. It was used to call Mickey Mousing and soundtracking. It was considered yeah. a bad thing to do. Like what? What you got to have every? This was, you know, until 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 these you know super. Well, I mean, movies. Now that's very funny. It was called Mickey Mouse because it's what we did in cartoons. You know, everyone smacked into everything. You make a noise. You get it on the soundtrack. But also, you get just a hit, you get a zing. You're a musician, you so you think it. about like Mickey Mousing. I think, in a larger sense, refers to a kind of. Um, you know, on the beat, that everything is perfectly rhythmic, that the sound is perfectly rhythmic to the action. And I think as a musician, you eventually learn to play on the beat, behind the beat, and to swing, and where you sort of start playing a song very much the way it's supposed to be, but then you eventually learn how to wrap a personal style or an improvisational style around a song, and you recognize the song and the absence of it. So Mickey Mousing is really a starting point, right? You no. Know. No, I totally disagree. I'll tell you why. I think it's again interesting you say that, but but actually, what it is is that it becomes a distraction. So the important thing is that what becomes a distraction? The amount of the amount of zings, hits, the corresponding things yeah. that everybody that every everything has to be sounded out. When people are making footsteps, you got to hear the the amount of foliation. That's what I'm stuff. saying. I'm also it's too much. I think we're in agreement, Jonathan. Oh, okay, saying, I misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. that's possible. The Mickey Mousing is an elemental starting point for how to do sound in them. It's something that music, like people who perform, for example, jazz music, moved past that quite a while ago. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think, yeah, I just mean too much detail. I mean, the thing about it is it's really just a matter of you don't have to play everything yeah. that you know. It's, a, it's very simple, and, and in the case, in the, but in the case of the, in the case of movie sound, it's a little bit over the top because, you know, 
what about, let's just deliver the emotion of the thing without the distraction some of the time. You know, you can have a great deal of stuff, things going on that don't have to be sound related. You know, you don't have to get every door closing, every footstep banging, every thing. But people do that in soundtracks. They didn't do that here. This is, a, in a way, I'm, I'm coming up with a, with a tangent, but it is interesting that we went to the, the extreme, which is, as you said, Italian movies. But I'm saying that those are highly watchable movies, but they're not the attention to detail, but but at the same time, I, it's not always necessary to go to go into an extreme of that, and everything's got well, a noise or whoosh, uh, you know. You can say again, just to be dismissive of Italian cinema in general, that sound production, sound recording, and you know that there was that the 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 task of adding dialogue to complete the film in Italian cinema is not the same as the level of decision-making that goes on getting to the final product of a movie like Popeye. Or to give you another example, Dick Tracy, which was another movie that was within 10 years of Popeye, there was also a really specific way of making a film based on a comic book to the extent yeah. that they ended up not just doing productions, like a sound mix that sounds dynamic and cinematic. Like they added cartoon sound effects yeah. so that people would like sproing and splat and all the other Yeah, stuff. that's like the, the, the Batman cartoon. You know? um, so they, but not cartoon Batman series. So the village of Sweet Haven was built. That's an actual village that they built on the side of that. Still mountain. there. Yeah, yeah. And that it was built by which I mean that there are interiors that you can actually go inside and live there. That, um, that they didn't just build the front or Usually you would say, what part do we have to see and what part do we don't? And they went and they built, I think, three-quarter size, the whole thing. And it's so unusual because they really didn't want it to look um, great. They wanted it to look like no right angles, like it's really yeah. a very unusual place. I think they did some of that. That that, that was when it went on for, uh, for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I think he'd seen that before. Then they build it, then they build out that entire place in, in Canada. It's the dream, uh, it, it's the dream of all filmmakers. Yeah. Like when Scorsese made Gangs of New York and he went to Chinachita Studios in Rome, I guess. We're back to the Italian films, yeah. Chinachita. Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah, you get there. That's good. It's and his good. desire when he made Gangs of New York was to construct little five points, and so he built an entire lower Manhattan. Yeah. You know, I think that's the dream, to, do, to see how much you can build. Uh -huh. I think that's just the brass ring. And Robert Altman, this movie is an odd sort of, I don't know if I'd call it a Waterloo, but like this was very much at the end of him making studio pictures. He'd made this one after a series of three flops. Uh-huh. Um, and you know. What were the flops? Health. Uh-huh. Um, a Perfect Couple, uh, which uh, co-starred Paul Dooley, who was uh, played Wimpy in this. And golly, uh, the third one you think I'd know offhand. But I don't. Sorry. Uh, but uh, but he made a couple. Uh, Altman was a very cons uh, a very busy filmmaker. He worked very prolifically, and so he was a hit and miss kind of person. And I think in the eighties there was a period not long after this where he left studio filmmaking and made some unusual projects. He made a movie called Secret Honor about Richard Nixon that was done as a school project. At An incredible University. film. I, I want to yeah. say that's a great movie. It's, it's a great film. Uh, uh, it made the guy play you know, Nixon. He, he, he did a lot of filmed plays. He filmed the Harold Pinter play The Room for television. He filmed the Sam Shepard play Fool for Love. Uh, he made a lot of very little movies. He yeah. made Vincent and Theo. Uh -huh. And then he didn't have a proper comeback until... Um, the player. Huh? Yeah, it went like that. It went The Player, 
then, and then shortcuts. Short and yeah. then he was sort of back and he had his last full swell for his career where he got to make a lot of things, where he basically reattracted the talent, which is what, uh, you know, his yeah. casting choices. He was somebody who was very much in the 70s era that made sex symbols of people like Elliot Gould and George Segal uh -huh. and Shelley Duvall and Karen Black and lots of um, non-traditional uh, matinee idols. And so I think a lot, that personnel changes, you know, and so the 80s had a different group of those people who get movies made and the 90s had another group. And the filmmakers like Robert Altman and Woody Allen have to continually attract the people who get movies financed. So yep. I think Robert Altman lost that track and then he got it back. Mm. Um, well, uh, and of course, you know, Shelley Duvall, who he'd sort of put in a lot of movies, is in retrospect the only human being who could have played Olive Oil. It was the part she was born to yes. play. Yes, uh, it's so perfect. But being, the know. story apparently is that they weren't uh, they weren't close at the time. <laughs> so uh -huh. he was reluctant to hire her, but of course she's, uh, she's uh, not only great, she was at the time, the movie was very temporarily received, but she was the one person who received universal praise. Yeah. Uh, all right, can we talk about the music now? Can you tell um, Can you tell the listeners anything about Harry Nilsson? Well, Nilsson was a, so, some kind of special genius in music. I mean, starting it had been in the 60s. It, it, he, you know, it's the Aerial Pandemonium Ballet, which is one of the craziest records ever, and still is, but an, an amazing listen. And he was incredibly talented at, 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 at singing, at vocals. He was a guy who could, who could layer vocals and sing anything. His voice was unbelievably together, but he was also an incredible songwriter and could do, he's one of these guys who could sort of, you know, he was like Peter Sellers of, 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 of music style and he could kind of uh, do, you know, and of course, he, his, his larger fame even than that showed up because he was really good friends with John Lennon who, as far as we can tell, just virtually idolized the guy for a certain period when they lived in LA, but, you know, but, and, and, and Nilsson's a great rock and roll character because he, he which he didn't only do, he also did weird crooning jazz records and all kinds of things, but he, he did, he, you know, I mean, I spent, the end of his life was just wandering around in the bathrobe the whole time drinking cognac, but he could still do it if he needed to do it. And, and uh, He's one of those zealot characters because he's, whenever I try to explain to somebody who he is, there's, you can start with, there's like five odd details that you could say. Like that, he sang the song "Everybody, Everybody's Talking" in Midnight Cowboy. Yes, he did. He didn't write the song though; he just sang it. Yes, but he he had a lot of right. The big song that he wrote. Well, it turns out after now that now that now that he's no longer around, the years have gone by. That the, probably the most famous thing turns out to be "Lime in the Coconut." Unfortunately, but you know, not unfortunately, it's a right. So you song. can say, I think it's one of the funniest songs ever. But right, uh, and it's, it's the closing yeah. credit song for Reservoir Dogs. You could yeah. say that he wrote one is the loneliest number. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, those records. But the point is that you're dealing with an incredible writer who really had no problem delivering what is the perfect music for this this film, and funny as hell. I mean, really put together, incredible. And again, with these vocal things that are, you know, like you can see Nielsen coming up with. But it's 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 a kind of genius writing that really moves the story along. They're they're simultaneously they're not like. They're not like everybody. Let's stop and do a do a musical number thing, which can be really 
a drag after a while, but in this one they sort of keep moving. It, it keeps moving in a kind of way. Sometimes it's not really a whole song number, it's like a sort of thing that's going on simultaneous to the action. The songs are written amazing, and they have great piano stuff, great Americana type, you know, what we now call Americana type things in it, things that are reminiscent of ragtime and all that, but also wonderful string things, and it's, it's a, you know, it's arranged and recorded great, and, and I mean, and he's large. Incredible. <laughs> we have to address some of the original songs. I mean, I, I wanted to add in there that you know the 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 Hollywood New Wave, of which Altman is a major person, were sort of the mammals that ate the dinosaur eggs of the studio system. Uh, the studio sort of ended up on the rocks because of making movies like Hello Dolly, uh, and then movies like Easy Rider were like, no, this is the soundtrack movie of our era. Yeah. So it's funny that Scorsese ends up making New York, New York, and Coppola ends up making One from the Heart. They all have these dreams. And so this Popeye is a musical. Yeah. It's yeah, a, it I mean, a which, like I said, Superman's not a musical. Like, I, I think it's because he wanted to make Annie that he wanted to do this. And so, but the songs are so good. I mean, I, I also have to add in that the, Hollywood new wave musical is like the use of Simon and Garfunkel in The Graduate, the use of um, Cat Stevens in uh, Harold and Maude, and McCabe and Mrs. Miller's use of Leonard Cohen. Like to find a, a troubadour who doesn't appear in the movie, but essentially accompanies it. That's like yeah. the classic movie. Well, you know, so, again, I, this, is, this is one of these, if you follow the story back, I mean, right. Hollywood is very, struck by this because High Noon had a had a hit and and then after that they, they real it, it became the thing that you had to have first now then you had to have a song that was associated with it and then it ended up being a Frankenstein act a short while later you went to the problem like Butch Casting a Sundance Kid where we stop what would otherwise be an incredible sort of popular Western great thing and suddenly he's yeah. riding around on a bicycle singing raindrops. You know, it's it, funny. So, it's the, but they had to have a song, right? right. They got to, you know. <laughs> so, but you don't have that. This Popeye does not stop for the music. The music no. is the movie. It is. So let's talk about some of the songs because they're all eccentric because they're just they're very they're very original. They're very much. They're you wouldn't mistake them for some other songwriter's work. You wouldn't think it was Bert Bacharach. So what, can you tell me what it is about the song, like, He's Large, that's so amazing? He's tall, good looking, and he's large. He's large. You know, part of it is it's a cultural thing that isn't there that it has to do it has to do again with the kind of eccentricity that was permissible coming out of these guys that were from the 60s in that way uh, that uh, they didn't it wasn't um, you know if you get back to things that were considered adult and children like like see now we've gone back to completely uh, infantilizing everything again, you know, but there was a period there where things were really in the middle. They could be funny both for adults and for kids, and kids could be a little bit more adult, and adults could be a little bit more childlike, and a lot of that went on from everything that had to do with, you know, a culture that had produced things at that point that were absolutely fine, like, you know, free to be you and me and things like this, and then 
and then moving upward from there, you know, and and then you have the you know what, what the Muppet Show, which is vaguely sitting on a thing there, where it's that, and so of course you know, and this is funny because now if you look at what the Muppets, the Muppet story, like the Big Bird movie, which was a great movie, the I Am Big Bird movie, which sort of said, you know, he was kind of lamenting the fact that the, that, the that, documentary that, about Big Bird. yeah, the, the the documentary about the about the guy that played Big Bird for for years. I don't know if you you see that it's very grateful, but you know he he. It was interesting in that movie because it confirmed really what my suspicions were, which was that now they want something, they want all of those things, the, the Sesame Street things, to appeal to a much younger person than they did for years. So an interesting thing here is that it was okay for these things to be slightly dangerous on a psychedelic way, also be for kids and also be for adults. And it's a very interesting cultural so, thing that went on there, and that music fits right in that. And they got a guy who, he could express simultaneously what was cool about Popeye, what's cool about his own music, yeah. what is and 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 be tongue in cheek about what's ridiculous about it simultaneously. So all of those kinds of shades are showing up in the in the songs and the music. It's not a musical like as I said, they don't stop and make a big deal out of being a musical. They're musical mm -hmm. numbers, but they're not. Like, I mean, you know. so so it's also. I'm and you're trying to get me. I'm, I went about it because you're trying to get me to say what is unusual about Nilsson and why it would be different than say if 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 Henry Mancini had done it. You know. No, I mean, uh, just to, to re-ask the question, I wanted you, like, as a songwriter, mm -hmm. to characterize what it is about. Like, all right, I'll just say I'm a non-musician. I hear he's large, and I think, oh, the word large takes over the line. Like, <laughs> he's large. Yeah, but you know I mean? yeah, yeah. Like there's a kind of like pleasant unity of form and content <laughs> in which the song is exactly I what see. it is. But here, I see me, what you're saying. Okay, me, now that's interesting. That's an interesting. Yeah, I want to talk about the songs, of, man. You want to talk about that? Well, that's an interesting. Because you're talking about a kind of word painting there. Okay, you brought it up. So that is that is the case. They use the term large, and it's and it's put in the in the, in the, in the, in, the, in the shape of the song, the shape of the line that way, and that's very brilliant. It, definitely, you know those kinds it, of And then there. also, it's about sort you know bad. olive oil is like playing these two dudes. She's got the two guys, right? Yeah. It's always been her thing. She has these two suitors. Yeah. And the song is really, it, it's perfect for her character because it's about how you really can't explain why you end up with a dude like Bluto. And so she keeps reiterating the one thing she knows. Yeah, but see, the ironies of that scene aren't really that. The ironies of the scene are that she's trying to escape while she's singing this song. The, the, the number is incredible because she's she's given the women are like the other her friends that are there to help her get dressed for the party are attempting are asking her why the hell she's with this guy and she's simultaneously saying what she thinks that is good about him which is just that he's big while she's packing up and trying to run away it's you know so, it's not you know, a simple scene again robert allman wanted to take everybody who was making the film far away from hollywood and so he actually did bring harry nilsson and all the musicians to malta which yeah. again is not required what a they, party they could have made the music so yes by all accounts it was um an amazing party robert altman writes in his indispensable book the kid stays in the picture about how uh what happened when his luggage was detained on its way to the nation of malta um because uh perhaps something in the luggage and the last film that had been shot in malta was midnight express and so he was very nervous about what would happen if they found his luggage and looked in his luggage and i think he ended up getting out of trouble by requisitioning a letter to the president of malta from henry kissinger 
Now, that is really ironic. That's the story, right? Uh, additionally, <laughs> the, you, you, you skirted by a funny detail there, which is the guy that plays Bluto was actually in Midnight Express, which is interesting, as the only starring in Midnight Express as the, as the incredibly sadistic guard. He was also large. Also large. <laughs> so, uh, so he got all these. This guy was apparently huge yeah. at birth, though. I mean, I read something that had one of, the, one of these factoids, Hollywood factoids, and that guy was apparently came out seventeen pounds or something. You know, probably uh, that that song was probably <laughs> inspired by something in the delivery room. So, uh, uh, so if you imagine that it's uh, that it's this village that's full of like. You know, what's the, the joke that they said about the village of Sweethaven is that Malta being a giant rock had no native wood. They had to like bring in every stick that wow. they built out of. So you have all these like crew people, the art people who are like building and carpentry, and then you have a bunch of partying musicians from the 70s, and then you have a bunch of actors, and then you have a bunch of clowns. So you know they got into it. Oh yeah. Uh, they they all and it was at a time in their lives where they all did the things that I'm assuming they quit later. Yeah. So, uh, but but I think that the advantage of besides independence of having the songwriter around is that you just know that they contoured the songs to fit the scenes. And what do you know about Van Dyke Parks, who was the band leader and he did all the orchestration right. conducting and actually is in the movie. Also very interesting uh, music person Van Dyke Parks and 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 uh, and Klaus Warman also very interesting who's in there a lot of Warman of course has shown up on a, on a whole lot of uh, you know iconic uh, you know English rock and roll session stuff. Um, Van Dyke Parks very interesting also. And you know the thing about it is I don't know whether yeah, and imagine if you hand people something where you're gonna get you're gonna get to indulge your fascination with, say, like you know, American medicine show ragtimey, uh, you know, marching band type hokum music, but you're gonna get to do it as a musical and do it on a high level with a big budget. You know, it's it's really it's it's, it's really it'd be cool if you were a musician. You know, it'd be like somebody who's gonna bring you in and say, yeah. Hit it, man! You can, you, you can, you can really do, you know, go the distance here, do whatever you want, and I mean that's a great thing in a musical. I mean, most film jobs, most film music jobs are really, it's a job, you know. You have a lot, you have to fill in a lot of. Things. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not that that kind of film composer, but I mean, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy work and it's grueling and what and, and the amount of back and forth that has to go on and compromising and and sorting things out in order to actually score films that way is really different than the party that this thing was, you know. Um, is, you uh, according to Robin Williams, there was an open bar at the dailies. So just for our listeners, the dailies are uh, every day or so after you've shot the film, you watch the film that's just been processed. So as the film is being shot, the filmmakers, the director, producer, cinematographer, and other essential people uh, watch the footage as it's being processed. And so you see what you're shooting and it helps you change what you're doing or go back and fix something else. Um, and so there can be a social aspect to it, but apparently they had everybody there and they, uh, as Robin Williams put it, there was an open bar and he said, um, if you're going to watch two hours of people rowing, you kind of need something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I highly I recommend mean, the oral biography you know, of Robert Alma, yeah. which is full of stories like that. I, I think, 
yeah, this is what's going on with the world too. Is that it's, it's not really permissible anymore. To, to, we're just going through a massive period of repression, really. That's reflected in the artwork. I hate to say it again and again, but that's really the case. So, but, so this this thing is not from that uh, thing. And in fact, it was okay for him to remove the suits from the room and, and go to go to another country and deal with deal with that situation, which is which is really amazing. But here's the the other thing I want to get into is some is the scenes besides he's large I, there's the, you'd have to go through with me and remind me of the different songs for me to actually have some comment I'll, I'll just go say that great songs great movie but I also got to talk about some of the crazy scenes that that are in this movie uh, it, 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 let's talk about my favorite thing which is the horse racing scene <laughs> and how they even thought of that as, as what they're going to do you know, this is for the listener out there. This is you've got to see the movie just to see the horse racing scene. It's incredible. Well, would you about. characterize it for them? They so in the in the early cartoons of Popeye, there's a feature to Sweet Pea, which is that Sweet Pea is somehow uh, a predictor, like has soothsaying abilities of some some degree. But in a, in a funny way, it signals the baby, the child. This is their baby that they that they find, which is funny. In in this movie, it goes through a sort of you know, it's like an odd Moses tangent that shows up uh, the way the way that Sweepy comes about into the story. But uh, but then um, uh, at a certain point, Wimpy decides that he's going to steal steal the kid because he realizes the kid can 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 predict crazy things and run with him to the racetrack. So he gets the racing form. And you think, what the hell? And next thing is, you see him taking off with the baby in one of these boats, and you know, it's, they have these ridiculous chases and boats across a very small body of water. So, very large people on very small boats on very small, small bodies of water. And, he, and, and you know where he's going, but he goes into what is their horse racing track there, which is toy horses that go around on a track in a circle, and everyone's cheering the toy horses. It's really amazing. I mean, I just want to know what, how they, you know, the, 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 the leap in imagination that did that and then decided that they were gonna that they were gonna run that way you know uh, Pfeiffer tells a story about the original ending for the movie and how it was going to be this fight between um, Popeye and Bluto on a boat where they would beat each other up with pieces of the boat that they would tear off oh, okay and they would like be fencing with the different masts uh-huh and then eventually they'd tear up the entire boat uh-huh um, that costs money, yeah. and so they were like, "Yeah, what about them just fighting underwater?" Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh-huh. so something that's easier. So I, my, while it's you're right, it's a brilliant leap of imagination. I always think like it was necessity. Like it might have been something more elaborate. And they're like toy horses, right? Uh, yeah. And you have, like I said, you have all these circus flea circus people. Yeah. They're like, and again, those. those the Pickle Family Circus people were like, you know, uh, 70s circus people. Like they were, um, you know, like the Doug Hannon generation. Like they were processing the entire history of what they did into something new. So it's so old timey that it's probably exactly what they wanted to do. Uh huh. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But it was sure. the perfect. It's perfect for the aesthetic. I mean, that's the other thing about this movie. You could just. Any, just pick a frame. Oh yeah, everything. Like, yep. Any outfit you can hear anything. Um, and then, then, then there's the other amazing scene that I love in the movie, which is, which is when we just when we really first come across Popeye's 
father pappy there poop deck pappy poop deck pappy yeah in, in the in the boat and then the boat you know then then he ends up strung up in the chair like that which is it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, Ray Walston is talking, screaming, yeah. <laughs> screaming while he's tied up in the chair. You know. Yeah. What about how um, Sweet Pea was played by Robert Altman's grandkid? Yeah. Because the kid had that, they had a crooked smile. Yeah. Right? And Altman allegedly said, see, that's where you put the pipe in. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you like the song... Um, he needs me. It could be fantasy, oh. Or maybe it's because he needs me, 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 he needs me. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, it, it that's a great one, you know. And, 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 and of course, the thing that's so great about those about those songs too is that they're not really. They're not weepy, right? So it's a weird kind of thing. You get the emotional trip out of it without them having to be overly weepy or overly emotional. Sometimes I think now, you know, that, that this is this is kind of a lost thing. How to have something that is descriptive of another person and just watch it and feel, and not feel like you have to be. It has to be moving you. You can watch it and be like, oh yeah, it's really. This is that kind of character is going through this now. It's moving them. You know, I think that's a great thing. That's a great thing, and that's the way that song, you know, comes off to me. You know, that's a great, it's a, it's a great kind of thing. You know, like not everything has to be. So it can be somebody else's story in the song, <laughs> not yours, and you can follow the story. But I think you know, we, we you know, we've lost the ego to relate to things now and be like, it, but, it has to, has to make you weep, and you have to. But even you know. more specifically, it makes it. I mean, because the songs do have. Here's what keeps them from being. I think that weepy thing you're talking about. Which is it's the nature in writing um, show music, mm. right? Like show tunes, is that you think that a lot of songwriters are going for a kind of universality, yeah. right? That you're doing cats, and your song is called Memories, and it's like, oh, everybody has memories, and you could sing it in any context. Whereas I don't think there's any song in Popeye that makes any sense outside of Popeye. Perfect. <laughs> that like you're not gonna sing Sweet Haven. You're not gonna sing I Am What I Am. You know what I mean? He's large. It's unlikely. He's <laughs> large. is gonna come up. They might not even have it at the karaoke bar. Nonetheless, if you had a record of it, you'd be you'd want to hear it. Oh yeah. I mean, you, and you, so you know. it, it's they are they are precisely what they are. They're not they're not overshooting their target. They're hitting exactly what they need to do. Um, you know, there's and then there's the asterisk about that song, uh, He Needs Me, which is that it showed up in the film Punch Drunk Love. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, um, Robert Altman's style is so specific. Mm. His use of lenses and these deep frames and these large ensembles and the overlapping dialogue. There really isn't anybody out there who took that aspect of his style. Or Alan Rudolph, maybe, but he was a true acolyte. Whereas Paul Thomas Anderson uh, made an Altman-like film called Magnolia, mm -hmm. where it was about you know two dozen intersecting characters, mm -hmm. and but he shot it in his own sort of uh, you know Scorsese, Jonathan Demme kind of way, lots yeah. of lots of push-ins and lots of like intensity. But he's uh, he was a good friend of um, Altman's, and as a matter of fact, you know Altman's final film, uh, Prairie Home Companion, was almost not made because when a director becomes older and 
Altman had a heart transplant. And, uh, he was hard to bond. You know, they won't make the film if they think that your health is any risk. Uh-huh. And so he couldn't get that movie made unless Paul Thomas Anderson signed on and said, if for some reason he passes away, I'll finish the movie, I promise. Uh-huh. And so he staked him to his final movie. Anyway, so he, um, uh, so he took a song from Popeye that, again, is very hard to remove from context. And he puts it as sort of a love theme in this very idiosyncratic love story called Punch Drunk Love. And it's really nice to hear it because you think it's a very, spe- I guess, specific reference. It's like, it's, you know, uh, Harry Nilsson is such an eccentric character. His name is sort of whispered in the wind. You find somebody else who likes Harry Nilsson and you just lock off and you're like, okay, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Because he's not, you know, he's not a, a common person. Almost everything about... And this movie uh, is... But you're saying Nilsson's not a common person. Yeah, like yeah. he's not, you know, he's like the guy who's, he's a he's a cult character, sort of, despite the fact that he was enormously successful. Yeah. But he didn't perform live, he never toured. Yeah. He's, you know, as a songwriter, a lot of his work is behind the scenes. And he was a musician's musician and a songwriter's songwriter. So he's yeah. a, he was a favorite of those people. Yeah. So I'm just saying, I, I mean, I disrespect him, I'm a huge fan. But I mean, uh, I mean, I, what is the name of the documentary? There's a great documentary about Harry Nelson that's called something like, Whatever Happened to Him? Or, who is Harry Nelson? Like for people who don't know anything, that he was the person who united all these different stories. Popeye is also a. Cult we remember movie. he had done he had done a musical on record that was really very funny too. Which one are you talking about? The point. Oh, the point, of course, right? Yeah, yeah, I forgot so, he did the songs yeah. for the animated movie. And yeah. yeah. What well, I, I I was watching clips of that crazy uh, vampire movie. Uh-huh. He did a vampire movie with Ringo Starr, I think, called Son of Drac. I gotta see it. Oh my gosh, there's a song in it that's an instant (laughs) classic that's, uh, you know, all about how he doesn't like sunlight. So uh, Popeye is a cult movie, and what makes something a cult movie is that it has to be unsuccessful. It has to be a movie that people like on their own. Well, because you have to have a cult, right? Like there's no, I mean, it's hard to call Star Wars a cult because a a cult is not dominant. You know, Star Wars is like Christianity. Star Wars is Catholicism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very, very much. Whereas you find people who are into crawl, yeah. you know, and you're like, oh, crawl, are there more of you? Yeah. Like, where are you? So Popeye is a movie that because it was considered unsuccessful, uh, it didn't uh, sell a lot of toys. It didn't, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't a smash hit. I, and so later it was rediscovered and I think... How unsuccessful was it? All right, I know the numbers. It was a movie that was budgeted at $13 million, which is a fair amount of money for that time. They went over budget, they spent 20. Uh-huh. And it made 60. Oh. So obviously that's a failure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, uh, a movie has to recoup, they say a movie has to recoup uh, 2.5% of its budget, because of course there's points. Uh, which you know are not budget line items, but they are. They get a piece of the money that comes in. So if you gave away half of the points, you know half the money is like going away to people. It doesn't go against the, to defray the budget. Uh, you know, there's PEA, there's advertising. Uh, we're just touching on the uh, uh, legendary Hollywood subject of how you know you how Art Buckwald can sue Paramount Pictures over coming to America win the case and then be told that coming to America wasn't successful. Although it did make uh, in the nine figures, like it made over a hundred million, made several hundred million dollars a week. And so, um, uh, that because they can prove that there were never any net profits. Uh-huh. So I think Popeye 
because Popeye was not the success that Annie was on Broadway, and Popeye was not the success that Superman was, sure. and there wasn't going to be a Popeye 2, and it just didn't do anything other than what uh, Robert Altman intended, which was to make a wonderful movie. It is wonderful. It really is, and I think, uh, uh, I, I don't know if we're getting near the end, but there's a quote I think would be great to end with, which is that... Uh, Everybody in it had a wonderful time making it, and everybody in it really much liked the way it turned out. And then in retrospect, it was a financially successful movie. It's aged well. Children love it. it, it it's a really original piece, and everybody did perform at a high level, despite the fact they did it with a lot of freedom. When you, whenever you talk about the idea that they, you know, the sort of they don't make them the way they used to, or the way the system works doesn't allow artists to do their best work. When artists make a movie that is as original and specific stylistically as Popeye is, filmmakers, the auteurs who have it all on their shoulders, who get the credit or the blame for whatever they do, what they have to do when they make movies and they succeed is that they acquire a kind of credibility. MASH succeeds beyond everybody's expectations. They're like, well, what? How did you do that? Can you do it again? And he makes Brewster McCloud, uh -huh. right? Where Bud Court's living in a bird suit in the Astrodome. And they're like, okay, wait. And then he comes back and makes McCabe and Mrs. Miller because Warren Beatty's like, I bet we'll do something original. And they do. And then he makes Nashville, which is like his masterpiece, one of several, but one where it's like, wow, you just made this gigantic piece. What else can you do? And so then they take risks, which is what artists do. So the idea that Popeye is a movie where he not only took every risk, the dude's got a bread loaf forearms, just like he looks like the cartoon character. He doesn't speak in discernible English. Olive oil actually looks like olive oil, which would, they would never do now, right? He did everything you could do, and it was still financially successful. And you think, well, that's, you say if only the world worked like that. Why would you never have somebody look like olive oil? Well, because, um, they wouldn't pass up the opportunity to attract young males to the movie by putting somebody who fills out a swimsuit better. I see. I dare say. Uh, now we can look at it and say, oh, the characters have to look like that. I mean, Johnny Depp, who's done a lot of work with Tim Burton, was in the movie called Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. And his original, and he, Johnny Depp, as the world knows, loves spirit gum. He loves makeup and outfits yeah. and wigs and characters. And so his initial version of the character of Ichabod Crane had a long pointy nose, uh -huh. like a Cyrano nose. Uh -huh. uh, and he had this great quote, I wish I could remember, which he sort of jokingly said that that didn't go over well with the top brass, mm -hmm. right? Because you still want Johnny Depp with your Ruby. And I think Robert, you know, Robert Altman would have gotten away with the pointy nose, right? Yeah. So I'm just saying every decision, the decisions that a filmmaker makes when she or he is an artist are ones that are best for the movie. And they're never what's best for their career. And they're never what's best for the box office. They yeah. say, if I do my job right and make a great movie, the audience will find it and discover it. Hopefully in the short run, eventually in the long run. Right. They're shooting for the they're shooting for their best work in the moment in the hopes that it'll last in the way that it should. Whereas filmmakers who are more conservative stylistically or commercially are the ones who are making every decision based on the likelihood that it'll bring enormous short-term results and keep them from getting fired. That level of anxiety, which is what would have happened if he shot that movie in Burbank, 
You know what I mean? I just I, I find the level of conformity just exhausting now. Huh? Like I mean, just it, it, it's in everything. It's just like a, but it's there, I, the I mean, in the, the arts, and it's funny because I mean, it's one of the things. Also, always deferring to the craftspeople to the point of like they just have to do. You know, people are doing excellent level of craft work, but ultimately, what do you have for a movie? Is this incredibly conformist? But I mean, it, I I also complain about them frequently, but the the economic principles that govern filmmaking are laws of nature and laws of science and the people we admire most are the ones who find a way to conquer to manipulate those principles and conquer all of those laws to do something that seems impossible because it was impossible and they did it anyway yeah you know but then again you know it's, it's a little bit irre I mean that's trying to make something rational out of something that appears to be irrational and then and, and, uh, you know I don't know I mean I think the, the the thing about it is people do so much good work if they learn you know if they, definitely if they learned how I mean it doesn't come out of nowhere but for for doing very inexpensive movies you know very well we, I mean we talked about the the the, the thing with the uh, with Tetro with uh, yeah. with Coppola making what is a very small movie by the standards of the kinds of things that go on outside of that and. You know, so then, so then you have to wonder after that, what is all the fuss about on the other end? Well, I mean, just to, I mean, we could start a whole conversation, but I bet we can wrap it up close to here, which is that he, uh, both Robert Altman and Francis Coppola learned that the more money you require, the less freedom you have. Yeah. Or you can have money and freedom, but you're risking everything. And mm -hmm. artists do that. Coppola did. He lost everything more than one time in his career, and it's now like, if I can raise the money and shoot it the way I want to do it, I can do anything I want within that level. And so Altman, after Popeye, really reinvented his career by going off and making little movies where he had the utmost freedom. You know, I can't remember if I've said it before. We do, we will come up on a, on a, a director who makes really expensive movies that can flop and it doesn't hurt him at all. Uh, you it's know, just, but it's, it's just the Steven Spielberg thing, where you can, you can make, I can make a colossal budget flop and it doesn't do it. <laughs> I dare say that his most colossal flop eventually made money. He's the guy who was. No, exactly. You know, but it, uh, it, no, I mean, <laughs> uh, William Goldman, I feel like I, I'm going to give you all my chestnuts the more we do this thing. William Goldman has that great quote in his book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, in which he'll talk about all the different lines you'll get from the industry about trying to do anything original. And anytime something oh, will happen yeah. like, uh, let's say Moonlight, you know, Moonlight uh, was a movie that was made for a pittance and it goes on and wins the Academy Award and actually makes a fair chunk of change at the box office. Uh, you can go off and say, I have a coming of age story about an African-American kid who is realizing that he's gay and struggling with crime and, and they'll be like, well, who wants to see that? And they'll say, well, Moonlight just won Best Picture and they'll call that a non-recurring phenomenon. Oh, okay. that's the golden return. <laughs> They'll say, "Oh, that's a non-recurring phenomenon. Like that wouldn't happen again." As opposed to, uh, you know, uh, Star Wars, which they will chase again and again. It's like, um, you know, there's stories that they will tell again because they're easy ways to make money, and then they're non-recurring phenomena, of which Popeye truly is one. Uh, the the quote that I read just today was. Um, Robert, Robert, Robin Williams reflecting on his experience making the movie. It was his first movie. So then he went on to be like a normal movie star and make like regular movies, like dramas and romantic comedies and Mrs. Doubtfire and things like that. But he started off with this strange movie and he said, he said that Altman told him, 
most people in this business are are here to make shoes, but I'm in this business to make gloves. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's there's not a that you could take the best pair of gloves in the world and they would pretty much fail at being shoes. Yeah.